Good morning, everybody. Those of you who are new here, I'm uh, Chris Dirks. I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland, and it's just so awesome to come to church here. I mean, that testimony, we've, and, and we, we, I mean, the guys worked so hard on that testimony this week. There was so much other stuff we could have told in that testimony, and some of the stuff that's going on uh, that you guys are doing out in the community, in the fire department, and places like that, where people are listening to God, and He is setting people free. It's just exciting. And then to be here for the music and stuff, it's just, I mean, Sunday morning, this is my favorite uh, time of the week. And, and of course, last week, I, I started a new series on, uh, we're, we're looking, at, we're going to go through over the next while, it'll take a while. Next week, I'm, I'm not preaching now for a couple of weeks, I'm doing some school minister stuff, and so uh, Stefan and Ray Yoder will be giving some awesome, they have some awesome stuff that they're going to be going through, but this series will get kind of, uh, uh, you know, broken up a little bit, but whatever, we're going to work our way through. Last week, we started this series on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, we're calling it Seven, the uh, Letters to the Seven Churches, and, uh, you know, so many churches today in the West ignore the entire book of Revelation because they think it's weird. Um, the problem, I mean, f- f- and I mean, that's just so wrong for so many reasons. I mean, the Holy Spirit gave us the book, so we actually, we actually need the book. Um, but even more than that, I mean, Jesus is coming back. That's, that should be like the best news. That we, we should be obsessed with that as Christians. That shouldn't be weird news to us. That should be everything we're hoping for and looking forward to. Um, but anyway, we're not doing the whole book. We're doing the first three chapters, which is some of the most powerful. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the whole Word of God is so powerful, but the first three chapters of Revelation are absolutely powerful because it's a message from Jesus straight to, to local churches. It's straight from Him to us. And so in these first three chapters, we get to see, we get, a, we get a, 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 an increased revelation of who Jesus is. We get to see what kind of things make him mad. We get to, to see what kind of things make him happy. We get to see what, kind of th- what he wants from the church and what the church is supposed to do and be and all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's a powerful, uh, a powerful uh, section of scripture, the first three chapters of, of Revelation. I would encourage you as we're doing this series to for sure read through those first three chapters a few times anyway. Um, but so we started last week. Now, uh, last week, and I know you're going to laugh at me again for this now, and I don't mind if you laugh at me, that's fine. I'm, I'm getting used to it more and more. But I had a, you know, I'm, I'm working my way through. You know what, there's so much stuff in Revelation 1. It's, it's paradigm changing. And I just refuse to just skip over it. At some point, as we kind of get the basics and the foundation built, we'll be able to go further with each of the messages. But um, today, I'm, I'm doing one verse. We're doing verse 9. And it, you're going to see, though, because you have to, again, John makes these statements, Okay. And he makes these statements. I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not trying to make it go slow. He makes these statements that are so big. I mean, just the perspective of the church and the perspective about Jesus that goes behind some of these statements. If we just skip over them, we're really going to miss some stuff. And so today we're just going to do one verse. We're going to do verse 9. We're still in the whole introduction greeting thing. Um, But I really believe, and it's going to end up very practical at the end of this message, you're going to see evangelism and prayer in a whole new way. But we have to really mine down deep into some of these things John is saying. So I want you to bow your heads with me, close your eyes. We're going to pray, and then we're going to do Revelation 1, verse 9 today, all right? Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, first of all, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the first three chapters of Revelation. They are not weird. They are wonderful. They are powerful. And Holy Spirit, we need them. And this church needs them. And I just pray, Jesus, that you would give us your love for the church. 
that you would help us to see you in a new light, that you would help us to see ourselves in a new light, and that you would help us to be the renewal that you want to spread to this country. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so verse 9, one verse, big paradigm, one verse, big, you know, perspective of what the church is and what Christianity is and who Jesus is. And John says this as part of his whole introduction that we've been looking at the last two weeks. He says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Okay? John says, I'm your brother and partner. Now, like I said, we've got we've to go beneath the surface. We can't just skim over this because the fact of the matter is we don't, view, we don't view Christianity the same way that John did. We don't view it as a partnership and a brotherhood in tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus. And so where is this perspective coming from? You know, I, I see so many Christians these days, and they've got these little cards and these little lists of all the things they are in Jesus. And I'm not making fun of the, the Christians that do that. Some of you might be doing it. And, and a lot of it is great. I mean, but we're carrying around these cards that say, you know, I'm forgiven in Jesus, and I'm loved in Jesus, and I'm holy in Jesus, and all these things. And it's great, you know. Some of it that I've seen is not always theologically correct, but most of it is really good. And the stuff that is good, it's true. We have all these massive, huge, amazing blessings in Jesus. We are forgiven in Jesus. And we are children of God in Jesus, all sorts of things. And so Christians have got these lists. But one thing that you'll never see on a t-shirt or on a card is what John says here. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So in Jesus, in your relationship with Jesus, part of the package is tribulation and patient endurance. Now the question is, why? Okay, this is not a selling feature for Christianity. You know, at the Crusades, at the Evangelistic Crusades, um, you know, we're not selling to non-Christians. Come and know Jesus because there is tribulation and, pa and patient endurance in Him, right? You guys, when you're sharing, you know, your faith with your, uh, you know, unsafe family members or coworkers or whatever, it's not like we're sharing with them, hey, you need to become a Christian because when you're a Christian, part of the package is tribulation, patient endurance, right? It's not a selling feature. And yet here's John, okay? We have our lists of all the things we have in Jesus, but none of us includes what John has in the Bible, it's actually inspired by the Holy Spirit of something that is in Jesus, part of the package. And so the question is, why is tribulation and patient endurance in Jesus? Is it that Jesus wants to hurt us? Well, obviously, the answer is no. I mean, we know that Jesus loves us. So why is it that when I get Jesus, is it, does he want to hurt me? Like, why is he giving me tribulation and patient endurance as part of my relationship with him. It's just hand in hand. Uh, we're brothers and partners together with John, you know, who's writing this from a, you know, basically a, a prison colony, you know, a barren rock in the Mediterranean. He's suffering, and he's saying, I'm your brother and partner in tribulation, in patient endurance, in Jesus. And so this is where I said before, there's a huge, there's, there's a huge paradigm shift we need to get to understand this verse. 
we, because we don't talk like this about our relationship with Jesus. We don't talk this way about the church. We don't talk this way about our relationship with Jesus or any of that sort of stuff. We don't talk this way. And the reason is because there's a paradigm shift needed of the way we view Jesus and the way we view the church. And the thing you have to understand, and it's not just here, it's throughout the New Testament. It's not just Revelation, but it certainly is the paradigm. There's a paradigm that, that is the foundation that all of Revelation is built on. But I could show you tons of verses in Paul's epistles as well. There's a paradigm that is that is foundational to the entire New Testament about the world around us. And the thing you have to understand, behind the, the glasses that John is looking through, the glasses that the Apostle Paul is looking through, but John, when he's writing this passage that he's looking through, he sees the world differently than we do. See, in, in a court, and he sees it right because this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is not just John's opinion and we have, a, you know, other people have different opinions. This is actually true. His perspective is the right perspective. It's the Holy Spirit perspective. And here's their perspective of the world when they're writing the New Testament is there are two kingdoms in this world. And the two kingdoms are at war with each other. There's the kingdom of this world and there's the kingdom of Jesus or there's the kingdom of God. Two kingdoms. Now, you say, well, I've heard all this before. Obviously, there's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of God. But actually, we don't view... We don't actually view the world that way. We actually view the world in the way we act. And you'll see this as we get on more and more in this message. We actually tend to view as Christians, we view the world in kind of three segments. That there's the kingdom of Jesus, there's the kingdom of the devil, and then there's this big segment in the middle of neutral territory. And that's kind of like a lot of non-Christians and stuff, and they're in neutral territory. And then the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil are fighting over them on, on the two sides. And that's actually not a proper paradigm for how the world works. How the world works is that there's these two kingdoms. Kingdom, you're either in one or you're in the other. There's the kingdom of the, the world and there's the kingdom of God and these two kingdoms are utterly opposed to each other. They're not just different kingdoms. It's not like, you know, a few hundred years ago when they said kings and queens, you know, you had the kingdom of, of England and you had the kingdom of Spain and they're kind of two different two different kingdoms, and sometimes they're at war, but sometimes they're at peace. It's not like that. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Jesus are not just two different kingdoms, and sometimes they're at war, and sometimes they're at peace. They are utterly opposed to each other. They're utterly opposed to each other. They're constantly at war. The, the values that run one are absolutely different than the values that run the other, and this ties in very much to why John says that Christianity is a partnership in tribulation and suffering. Well, how, how do we get there? Well, here's the thing. The kingdom of this world basically, I mean, there's a set of values that the kingdom of this world runs on, but basically, if you were going to, if you were going to Pare it down to one. If there was kind of one defining thing, the defining difference between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of this world is run by the value, I want to, I want to run my own life. I want to be in charge of my own life. That's what defines the kingdom of this world. It started with the devil, right? He didn't just want to worship God. He didn't just want to give praise to God. He didn't just want to serve God. He said, I want to be like God. I want to be worshipped. And so he was cast out of heaven. And that was the start of the kingdom of this world. And now we human beings go over there as well because we also want to run our own lives. We don't want to submit to Jesus. We don't want to submit to Jesus. We don't want Jesus to tell us what is right and wrong. We don't want Jesus to tell us what to do. We want to follow our feelings. We want to live for ourselves. We don't want to sacrifice to live for him. We want to live for ourselves and get pleasure for ourselves. And the kingdom of the world, that is the value that the kingdom of this world runs on. It runs on self. I'm in charge of myself. I want all the glory for myself. Now here's the thing. The kingdom of Jesus is exactly, utterly opposite and opposed to that. 
Jesus as the king of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is all about him. It's not about you anymore. When you're in the kingdom of God, it's all about Jesus. It all revolves around him. It's not about me. I serve him. I submit to him. I obey him. And it's all about him. I give him all the glory. And it's not about me. And so the kingdom of this world hates the kingdom of Jesus. Because the kingdom of Jesus is an absolute threat to the way of life of the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of Jesus is absolutely opposed. It's the very thing that everybody who's in the kingdom of this world fears and hates the most. It's that Jesus would actually be in charge of their lives. And so the two kingdoms are opposed to each other. And so this is very much why John views Christianity as a partnership in tribulation and in patient endurance. Because when we get saved, something big happens. See, because we tend to view the world as three groups, the king of the devil, the king of God, and then this big neutral base in the middle, how we view salvation is very different than how the Bible views it. We tend to view it as all these people in the neutral ground in the middle, when they get saved, they get forgiven of their sins, and now they join the kingdom of light. And it's partially true. Amen. When we get saved, we get forgiven of our sins. That's very true. That's an awesome truth about getting, about, you know, asking Jesus in your heart. I'm now forgiven of my sins. That's a wonderful truth. But for most of us as Christians, that's where it stops. We just think, what is salvation? It's getting forgiven of my sins. But salvation is so much more than that. See, you weren't in a neutral country before you got saved. You're either in the kingdom of the world or you're in the kingdom of heaven. And so whether you knew it consciously or not, when you were not serving Jesus, you were serving the kingdom of this world. You say, well, I wasn't serving the devil. If you serve yourself, you serve him. Ultimately, you serve him. And so when you, got, when you got saved, you didn't just get forgiven of your sins. Something far, you know, more than that happened is you actually switched teams. You were in the kingdom of darkness, whether you consciously thought of it that way or not. Whether you con- of course, most people don't think of themselves as evil. Most of them don't think of themselves as serving the devil. But you were serving self, and that's what his kingdom is all about. And you, when you fell in love with Jesus, you fell radically in love with him, you gave your life to him, it ceased to be about you, and you came out of a kingdom. You weren't in neutral territory. You came out of that kingdom and went directly to the one it's opposed to. And so when you got saved, two things happened. You came into the blessings of being in Jesus' kingdom. You certainly did. You came into the blessings of forgiveness and the fruit of the Spirit and Jesus' love and all that sort of stuff. You came into the blessings of that. But at the very same time you came into the blessings, you also came into the hatred that comes from leaving the other kingdom. And that's why John says, part and parcel, becoming a Christian, part and parcel of being in relationship with Jesus is you don't just get forgiveness and all these sorts of things. He says, hello from John, I'm your brother and partner in tribulation and in patient endurance and in the kingdom because you switched over from the enemy, you switched over to here, and as a direct result of that, by default, this kingdom now hates you. And by being in Jesus, by definition, you now receive the hatred and the persecution and the suffering that comes from this kingdom onto this kingdom. Hugely, hugely important. And Jesus spoke about this lots during his time here on earth. And I'm not going to take time to look at all the verses. I'll just look at a couple of quick ones. We've talked about this before at Southland. But Jesus spoke about this a lot. It's not just neutral territory. The moment you come into Jesus's, everything that's in this kingdom recoils when it touches. Whether consciously they know it or not, there's something in them that recoils. I want to live my own life. When they encounter someone or something that's from Jesus' kingdom, they know that there's a threat there to that way of life, the self being in charge. 
And so Jesus talked about it often, that there would be this recoiling towards his followers, this recoiling of hatred. And he didn't just say it once or twice, he said it all over the place. Matthew 10, 22, I'll just put a few up there. All men will hate you because of me. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Luke 21, 17. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, okay, so that's a lot of hate, okay? And I'm leaving out a bunch of verses, okay? But Jesus said by definition, John said by definition, in Jesus... By coming into that kingdom, you will have tribulation. You will have patient endurance. Because you're coming out of that kingdom, they now hate you. And Jesus said, you will be hated by all men and all nations. He said it over and over and over again. And one of the reasons they hate is because the values of this kingdom are an absolute threat to their self-centered way of living. Whether they consciously know it or not. But in John chapter 15, Jesus actually goes deeper and he shows us where this hatred comes from. Okay, and I want to show you this. I'm going to put up verse 18 first and then in a couple minutes I'll put up verse 19. Okay? Ultimately, they hate us because the values of submission to Jesus, totally opposite to the value of, I live for myself. And in verse 18, Jesus takes it even deeper. He says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Here's the thing you have to understand. And this is, this is so huge for how we, and I'm going to show you like the practical implications of this, but this is so huge for how we view the relationship of our church and the culture around us. Jesus says, if the world hates you, and he already promised us they would, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Here's the thing you have to know. When people hate the church, they ultimately, it's because they hate Jesus. This is, again, this is really, really important because a lot of, there's a lot of church bashing right now coming from Christians. And Christians are saying the reason non-Christians hate the church is because Christians just aren't nice enough. Now, there is some truth to that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Christians out there that are jerks. But let's, let's just face it, okay? None of us is perfect. Okay, the church will never be perfect. And I'll be the first one. We're here at Southland. We're constantly going after Christians. We're going after each other. We're going after us here at Southland. We're saying we got to live what we preach. There's no question. There's no excuse for Christians to go out of here and be jerks. Certainly, Jesus will hold us accountable for that. But there's this, this church bashing that's going on that says the reason the world hates the church is because Christians are jerks. And that is not, that's not the reason. There's lots of atheists who are jerks, and, and the world doesn't hate atheists. There's Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus. I hate to break it to you. There's jerks in every group of people. And nobody says, well, I hate them because I've, I met a couple of jerks. Ultimately, the reason the world hates the church is not because some Christians have been jerks, even though, yes, we've, we, you know, we can't give them a reason to hate us. But ultimately, the reason the world hates the church is because there's something inside, whether they know con consciously or not, that they know that that kingdom is opposed to them. They do not want to submit to Jesus. And Jesus says it's because they hate him. It's because they hate him. Now, some of you are sitting there going, the world doesn't hate Jesus. And you're thinking about some things you saw on TV, like I saw Oprah. She said some good things about Jesus. And I saw some other famous actors and politicians. They said some, they said some real nice things about Jesus and how they like Jesus. Um, but here's the, and, and so you're, you're thinking, like, how can Jesus say that they hate him? Well, first of all, let's just get this straight. Jesus is never going to be wrong. If he says the world hates him, the world hates him, okay? But second of all, the thing you have to understand is this. When our culture says positive things about Jesus and talks about liking Jesus, the thing you have to understand is they don't really like Jesus. They like a false picture of Jesus that they've made. 
Our culture does not love Jesus. Jesus said they would hate him. That hasn't also changed, and our culture loves Jesus. When our culture talks about liking Jesus, what they're liking is a false picture of Jesus. They have this false picture, which we've talked about here at Southland before as well, but they have this false picture of Jesus that he was this, this long-haired hippie, and he just loved people, and he was a good teacher, and he said lots of good, neat, moral things, but he wasn't God, and he certainly isn't going to judge people, and he's not, you know, he, he's not going to come back to you know, judge the world or cast people in hell. He's just a, he was a good man who had some good teachings. That false picture of Jesus, yes, our culture has no problem with that false picture of Jesus. And they'll even talk about liking Jesus. But when they talk about liking Jesus, they like the false picture of Jesus that they've created. But when you go out into our culture and you talk about the real Jesus, that he's a king, Philippians chapter 2, one day he's going to make every single knee bow to him and submit to him. When you talk about the fact that he's coming back with a sword, that he actually plans to physically conquer the entire world and rule it, one man over everybody, and that he is extremely holy, and that, those who, that he is the only way to be saved, that you will be cast into hell if you, didn't, if you refuse to follow him over the course of your life. When the world encounters that Jesus, they absolutely hate him, just like he said. They absolutely hate him. And so he says in verse 9, if you were of the world, verse 19, sorry, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you too. The world hates the followers of Jesus because they hate Jesus. They don't want to submit. And he says, my plan is they're all going to submit. I'm the only way and I'm going to be the only king and I made you all, I'm the Alpha and Omega and they say, and everything in them, just like the devil at the beginning when he was cast down says, no, and it resists and it rebels. They hate him and then they hate his followers. And this has never been more true in the world than today. You look around the world, I mean, I can pull out newspaper, newspaper articles basically every day that the hatred of Christians today is worse than it's ever been before. You can look at, just in the last couple of weeks, Pakistan, Egypt, hundreds of Christians have been killed. And by the way, we're not just talking about being killed by, you know, neat, nice government execution squads. It's not just the governments that hate Christians. It's the people who hate Christians. You look in Egypt and Pakistan, you Middle East and Africa, Nigeria, some of the horror stories just over the last two, three weeks, and the major networks hardly actually talk about it. More people are dying, more Christians are dying today every single year being martyred for their faith than at any other time in history by far. But you look at what's happening to them. It's not just the government. It's angry mobs of regular citizens who hate Christians. And they burn the churches down. They do horrible things when they see Christians in the streets. And it's, it's this hatred. Jesus says, they're going to hate you. And he's not going to be wrong in anything he says. Now, of course, we sit here in Canada and we go, oh yeah, there's definitely that. And we've got to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. And there's this hatred, you know, in some of those other countries and, and Asia and China and some of the things that are happening to Christians. So it's happening over there. But no, 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 no. Jesus said, you'll be hated by all nations. The hatred isn't just over there. The hatred is in all nations. It just doesn't express itself at the same level of violence at this time. But the fact of the matter is that our culture hates Christians too. Our culture hates Christianity. We just don't see it nearly at the same level as some of these other places I just mentioned. We just don't see the outward persecution yet at the same level as we see it in some of the other countries. But I mean, you just look back to last winter. Last winter here at Southland, we just got a little peep. 
You, you remember when the newspapers went, went crazy on Pastor Ray there for a couple of weeks, and he was famous, and he was signing autographs everywhere he went in Winnipeg. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but you'll recall, I, the thing that struck me the most when that, this whole thing was, was happening, and they were going crazy on, on him, is how the internet lit up with blogs and comments. Many of them were published. People were, they weren't even talking about the issue anymore. It had nothing to do with the issue. They were saying the most vile things. Hundreds of people were saying, here in Manitoba, regular Manitobans and Canadians, saying the most vile things, not having nothing to do with the issue, just about Christians in general. Christians are Nazis and bigots and they all need to be put away and stuff far worse than that. And so you just stir the service just a little bit and the hate is right there. I, I remember we were out for... Uh, supper during that time with some people we're very close to who are non-Christians in Winnipeg. They were shocked. If, I mean, these are the type of people who beforehand, if I would have told them, you know what, there's a growing movement in Canada that hates Christianity. They would have said, oh, you Christians are imagining that. And then they were the ones, we're having supper together, they were shocked, these non-Christians were shocked by the things they were hearing people in their workplaces say about Christians. They couldn't believe it. They said, I can't even believe the things my coworkers, people, I just thought they were normal people, and now they're spouting the most vile things about Christians right in my workplace, about people they don't even know, about issues they haven't even studied. They're spouting this thing. Why? Jesus said, they hate him. They hate Jesus. They hate the real Jesus telling them what is right, what is wrong. They hate the real Jesus saying, bow your knee. It's only through me you're saved. They hate him. And so... And so they hate the church. And the hatred is everywhere, and we, we can just expect it. And so we have John in Revelation 1. He says, I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. This is part and parcel of following Jesus. Now, there are some practical implications to this as well, some really important practical implications. And I want to talk about two lies, and then out of that is going to come something where we talk about prayer and evangelism and how we have to view that differently in light of this paradigm. But first, let me tackle a couple of lies out there that are common today. The first lie is this. The more the church is liked by the culture, the more it can effectively evangelize that culture. This is, this is, this is the first lie we have, to, uh, we have to confront because this is not part, we have to have a real paradigm of what the church is and what the church is supposed to do. A lot of churches today are expending all kinds of energy trying to get non-Christians to like us. And not that it's wrong for non-Christians to like us, but they're spending all their energy on trying to, you know, become more like the culture because if we just become more acceptable to the culture, then people will love Jesus and they'll come in. And what they don't realize is the culture doesn't hate us because we're likable or unlikable. They hate us because they hate Jesus. But many churches right now, what they do is, well, we've got to become more likable. Well, let's, let's stop talking about things like hell, right? Because people in our culture don't like hell. So if we talk about it, it'll be counterproductive because if we talk about it, they won't like us, they won't come to church, they won't get saved. So let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about God's commands. Let's not talk about right and wrong. Let's not take a stand on anything having to do with sexual immorality. Let's become likable because if we become likable, then people will come and they'll meet Jesus and they'll get to know him. And what we're totally missing is they don't dislike us because of some of these things. They dislike the, the one who made these things. And if you look at the churches and the denominations over the last few decades that have tried the hardest, like some of these churches have basically become, all they do is spout politically correct slogans and tie Jesus in. 
They, that's basically what they exist to do, just politically correct slogans. Jesus loves every, everybody. Jesus isn't, you know, sin. It doesn't really matter. And Jesus is good, and Jesus loves the environment, all sorts of stuff. And, and, and then just, whoop, we just put those two things together, and the churches that have been pumping the hardest on this over the last few decades are the ones today, you, and they're thinking, we're going to get more people in. They're the ones who have basically become irrelevant. They're the ones who are shrinking. Almost nobody's getting saved there. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus didn't design the church for likability. He didn't design the church for likability. And it's not just the extreme liberal wing of the church. I'm not just talking about the extreme liberal churches where they just kind of throw everything out of the Bible and hope that people will like them even though they've lost everything that's distinct to Christians. I'm talking about, you read Christian publications now, and like I said before, there's all this church bashing, like shame on the church that more non-Christians don't want to come to church. And shame on the church that more non-Christians want this. And, and again, of course, have we Christians been perfect? No. But all of our judgment of the church is based on, is she likable or not? Shame on the church that more non-Christians don't get up in the morning on Sunday and say, I want to go to that place because it's so fun to be there. Shame on the church for that. The church wasn't designed for that. All of our judgments of the church are through the lens of, are, are, is the church likable or not? But the church wasn't designed to be likable. And this is based on this, and a lot of it is based on another assumption which I want to confront now, which is this, that this false assumption that the more we become like Jesus, the more people will like us. Now it is true that the more we become like Jesus, the more people will get saved. But it is not true that the more we become like Jesus, the more tons of people are going to like us. Think about history just a little bit. What happened to Jesus? Did they at the end of his life put him up in a stadium with thousands of people and cheer? Oh, you're so popular. We just love you. No. He had a couple hundred followers and then he had thousands in a mob screaming for his crucifixion. Give us Barabbas the convicted criminal instead of Jesus. Crucify him. He wasn't liked at the end of his life. John 7, verse 7. Look what it says here. The world cannot hate you. This is Jesus talking to his brothers who are not following him at this time. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. In other words, Jesus said, the world hates me because I make them feel bad for how they're living. The church is going, you know, we've got to stop making people feel bad for sin. And Jesus is going, aren't you supposed to be like me? Jesus made people feel bad for the way they lived, and that's why they killed him. They hated him. Now, of course, someone says, but I thought Jesus said to the adulterer, neither do I condemn you. He also said to her, go and sin no more. Jesus, Jesus is not, he wants repentance. See, Jesus always provokes something. He doesn't keep people comfortable. People think the church should be a comfortable place. People should just like to come here. No, no, Jesus never made people feel comfortable. When Jesus was around people, he always provoked them. They had to make a choice. They were either going to see how sinful they were and give their whole lives to him and repent like Zacchaeus, like the adulterous woman. Jesus, I need you. I'm so wicked. I'm giving back to everybody four times more than what I stole. Jesus, I just need you, and he just repents. Or they were like a whole bunch of the rest of them who just said, I don't want to change the way I'm living, and I'm leaving. You either hate him or you give your life to him, but there's not this middle ground of I'm going to make everybody like me and feel comfortable about me, and maybe eventually they'll get saved. 
And so the more we become like Jesus, the more we're going to see in the church is not that the church is going to become more and more comfortable to the, to the culture. What we're going to see is more and more people getting saved, no question about it, because when the power of Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus come into place, some people do see that and get provoked to repentance. But as a whole, Jesus says, the kingdom of this world has to hate me because I am the end of that way of life. He is the absolute utter end to the way of life and the way philosophy of life that is in the kingdom of this world. So they have to hate him or they have to repent and come over to his side. And of course, none of this is an excuse for Christians to be stupid. You know, I gotta got put this in there all the time. Some of you have a bent. You like it when people don't like you. Okay, that's not a good thing, okay? <laughs> Some of you, personality, this is your excuse. You hear Christian preach, Chris preach this message? Oh, now I can just go out and just do whatever I want and people are mad at me and I can just say, woo, they hated Jesus too. No, 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 no. Hey, Jesus said, I want you to be peacemakers. He said, you've you got to be filled with mercy. You've got to be filled with love. The people are not supposed to hate us because we're jerks. If people hate us because we're jerks, we will give an account to Jesus. But the whole point isn't that we've got to be jerks or not jerks. The point is we shouldn't be shooting for likability or unlikability. Neither one. Our point is to take a stand for Jesus and make him everything. And when that happens, some people will be brought to repentance and they'll fall in love with him and they'll get saved. A whole bunch more than are today because we'll be like Jesus. But a whole bunch of others will absolutely hate us because we represent the one who is the end of their way of self-centered living. Absolutely true. So, those are the two lies then. That bring, this brings up the truth and this is where this gets really practical. Is we need to start, if it's true that the world, I'm your brother and partner in tribulation and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus because there's these two kingdoms at war. There's no neutral ground. There's no comfortable middle. It's you're all in this one or you're all in this one and these two are at war with each other and Jesus is bringing an end to this one at some point. If all of that is true, then we have to view evangelism totally differently. We have to understand that evangelism is spiritual warfare. We have to understand that evangelism is spiritual warfare. See, we have a totally wrong view of evangelism. And it's like I said before, we view non-Christians as all being in this big neutral pen in the middle, and they're just free. They're free to go into one kingdom, the kingdom of, of darkness, or they're free to go into the kingdom of light, and they're free to move in or out. And all we have to do is just stand on our side and advertise enough and make it look good enough, and they'll just all come over en masse. And the fact of the matter is, it isn't happening. I mean, right now, we have a trickle. We have a little trickle here in Canada of people getting saved every year, and the proportion of Christians, according to the population, continues to shrink, and it's already very small. And we advertise. We put on programs, all sorts of stuff. It's not that it's bad to put on programs or outreaches, but we keep trying to convince the people in the middle, you've got to come over to this side. But what we don't realize is, there is no middle ground. The people who are not on Jesus' side are actually on the kingdom of darkness's side. And it reminds me of when my wife and I, at the beginning of our marriage, we spent a year in Korea, as I've talked about before. And uh, those of you who know anything about geography and, and politics and stuff, you'll know that Korea is divided in two right now. Basically, you know, almost right down the middle. There's North Korea, there's South Korea. We were in South Korea, obviously, because North Korea is one of the most closed, oppressive regimes, countries in the entire world right now. I mean, it, it is an awful place to live. They have no freedom of, of belief. They have no freedom of movement. They have no freedom of speech. It's, North Korea literally is one of the worst places to live. Lots of people have starved there over the last few years. And their government, they have about 20 million people living in North Korea. 
and, but nobody gets in or out really, and they have a, an army of a million people. So like you know, 5% of the population is one of the biggest armies in the world, but they can barely feed their people. I mean, it's, it's an oppressive, you know, tyrannical place, and they have like 1% of their population is in prison camps, hundreds of thousands of people. It's an awful place, okay? Meanwhile, just on the other side of the border where we were in South Korea, South Korea is like a Western-style democracy. It's, 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 you know, in some ways a lot like our country, just with the Asian flavor, but there's, you know, you have freedom of belief and freedom to go to church and people drive cars and go to movies and there's quite a bit of wealth and people live comfortably. And, and, and the other thing is the people in South Korea want to be reunited with the people in North Korea because what a lot of people don't realize is that when they, in 1953, when they stopped the war and they, and they drew the boundary line there, there was people who were caught from families and friends on wrong sides of the border. And so, you know, the people of Korea want it to be one country. It's supposed to be one country, but it's two. It's split in two right now. So you would think, well, life is way better in South Korea. It's wonderful in South Korea. It's horrible in North Korea. So all the South Koreans have to do is just stand on the border, wave a sign, life is better here, look at all the benefits, make some programs just for North Koreans, and invite them all over. And, of course, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous because the people in North Korea can't come over. They're in bondage, and they're in bondage for two reasons. First of all, physically, the army of North Korea keeps them from leaving. But second of all, from the time that they are little babies to the time that they die, they are fed with propaganda day after day after day after day after day after day that South Korea is an evil place to live. And the Western world is an evil place. And so the fact of the matter is that even though North Korea is one of the worst places in the world to live, a lot of their people actually don't want to leave. They are held in bondage. And so, of course, every year, a little trickle of real desperate ones do manage to escape and come over. Just like in the church here in North America, every year, a few desperate ones jump into our laps. A few desperate ones trickle out. Meanwhile, we make all of our programs and we sit on the border and we try to we do, put all this effort into getting people to come to church. Please come to church. Life with Jesus is better. You'll like it better. It's, he just blesses you and he loves you and he'll forgive you of your sins. And all we get is this little trickle. And the reason we only get a little trickle is because the Bible clearly teaches that these people are not in a neutral zone where they can move around. They're actually in spiritual bondage and they don't even know it. And so unless you, unless you go in and unless you, spiritual warfare, unless you go in and fight the kingdom and the forces that are holding them in bondage, they can't, for the most part, come out. And we see this all over in Scripture. I'll just read you one passage here, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. Paul says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. This is the Bible's paradigm of its kingdom versus kingdom. You're in one or you're in the other. And so if we're ever going to turn this thing to more than just a trickle of the few desperate ones, if we're ever going to see, you know, Canada, if we're going to start to turn around and see a flood of people getting saved, the church is actually going to start to make a dent when we've gone down to just these tiny single-digit percentages of people who are born-again believers here in Canada. It's going to take a lot more than programs, and not that it's bad to have programs. We've got to have outreaches. We've got to have programs. We've got to be welcoming. We've got to be all that. But standing at the border and just advertising isn't going to be enough. We're going to have to first, we're going to, have to first bind the spiritual forces of darkness 
that are keeping people captive. And Jesus himself said this, Matthew 12, 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, unless he first, unless he first binds the strong man, then he may plunder his house. So it's going to take a lot more than programs. If the church here in Canada, if we're ever going to start to make a dent, if we're going to actually start to see church renewal, and we're going to start to see a flood of Canadians actually have their eyes open up to how amazing Jesus really is and be saved to heaven for all of eternity, the, thing, the biggest thing that's going to have to happen is we're going to have to understand that evangelism is a lot more than a program. It's spiritual warfare, and that means we're going to have to become praying churches. The only churches that can function like this and snatch people out of the kingdom of darkness are churches where their core, the heart of what they do and their core value is prayer and fasting. And you go around the world right now, you know, sometimes our media is a little smug and they talk about how Christianity is shrinking, but it's only shrinking in some parts of the world. It's only shrinking here in the Western world. You go to the Middle East, the most persecuted places, you go to China, you go to Asia, you go to Latin America, Christianity is exploding. Now, how is that possible? We have more books on evangelism. We have more evangelistic programs. We have more outreaches than all of those countries combined, but we get a trickle and they're getting a flood. Hundreds of thousands of people are giving their lives to Jesus in other parts of the world every single year. How is it that they're getting it when we have all the programs and all the evangelism? I'll tell you why. They pray. They might not have the same amount of money. They might not have the same you know, amazing programs and books about evangelism, but they have God. And Jesus said, if you want to take the goods from a strong man, you first have to bind the strong man. And that's what they're doing. They're praying and fasting. You go into China, you go into Korea, you go into some of these places. Many of these places, the churches, they're doing like all-night prayer meetings once a week. Once a week, many of these churches. Once a week. And we in North America, we go, what? I don't have time for prayer because I have all these other things I'm doing. But you can't take the goods from a strong man unless you bind the strong man first. And if we're ever going to make a difference in this country, we're going to have to become a prayer and fasting church here at Southland and in Canada. When we were in Korea, another thing, again, I, I talk about it a lot when I talk about prayer because we learned so much about prayer when we were there. But our pastor, Yonggi Cho, uh, the church when we were there had uh, almost a million members, okay? So it's just crazy numbers. I mean, we would uh, services all day and people packed and you have to get there half an hour early and you still could barely fit in and and, and fire codes, what, what fire codes? Like people in the aisles and on the floors and everywhere, just packed, jam, 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 every week at church. And people getting saved. And so people would ask our pastor, Yonggi Cho, they would ask him, you know, come and do a conference. Tell us, how do you have a church like this? And every time he would go and talk about churches, he would talk about prayer. They would say, we want to do a church growth conference. We want to do a conference on cell groups. We want to do a conference on how do you start a church in a place that is resistant to the gospel. And every time, sometimes they would get mad at him. My dad was actually at a conference. Pastor Ray was at a conference here in Canada where the conference organizers got mad at him because they gave him four sessions to talk about church growth. He talked about prayer, 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 and prayer. And of course, there's more to doing church than just prayer. But the point is, everything has to come out of prayer. If it really is all about God, and we have to win the battle in the heavenlies first before we can rescue people on the ground, it has to start with going into his presence, hearing his voice, being filled by the Spirit of God, and then you go out and do his work. 
This is all about prayer. And he would talk about how they, he would do evangelistic crusades in, in Japan. Japan and Korea are very close together, both Asian cultures. One has a high percentage of Christians now, but only since, you know, in the last 70 years. One has an extremely low. Japan's a very extremely low percentage of Christians. And, and Pastor Cho would talk about how when he was in Japan, he would do a, a, a crusade, an evangelistic crusade, and, he, and hardly any people would get, would get saved. And then he would come to Korea, the same crusade, not very far away, and thousands of people would get saved. Why? And he said that he could feel in the spirit an open heaven above Korea because of the praying church. See, unless you, unless you bind the forces that are holding people captive, you can't rescue people other than having a trickle of the desperate ones get through. So you say, well, what are we, what are we gonna do? I mean, a church around the world is exploding, but they have prayer. What are we gonna do? How, how, where do we go? Well, I mean, always have, we just have to start with an honest diagnosis. Always you start, the cure comes after an honest diagnosis. Honest diagnosis, we don't pray. Churches around the world where it's exploding, we don't pray. Why don't we pray? Honest diagnosis, because we are self-satisfied and self-reliant here in North America. We just think we can do it. We can figure it out. We've got all these amazing programs and these amazing books. We'll do God's work in our own human power, and it's not working. We'll make flashy programs, but we won't actually have the Holy Spirit of God doing this thing in power. And so the fact of the matter is we're just self-satisfied and we're self-reliant. You say, well, well what are we going to do? Well, the awesome thing is Jesus loves the church in Canada too. Sometimes I think people, we feel inferior, almost like he must love the Chinese Christians more. He must love the Indian Christians more. He must love the African Christians more. It's not true. Jesus loves us Canadian Christians too. He, did, he loves us. And he loves the Canadian church and he is absolutely committed. I'm going to tell you something about Jesus' heart. Jesus is absolutely committed when he comes back, it's going to be a pure spotless bride everywhere in the world. He is not coming back to a bride that is pure and spotless in China and Africa and Asia and in Canada. It's kind of apathetic and lukewarm. He's not coming back to that. He's committed when he comes back, the church everywhere in the world is absolutely on fire for him. So you say, well, what, what, what's he going to do? Well, I don't know all of his plans. He doesn't let me in on all of them. He's Jesus. He's in charge. But he's going to make it happen. We can be confident. He's not worried. Jesus is in heaven right now going, oh, that Canadian church, I'm just so worried about it. It's not coming along. He's fully in control. So I don't know all of his plans, but I'll tell you one thing he's going to do. He's going to bring to our country and the church in our country, he's going to bring economic hardship and increasing political pressure and persecution. He's going to bring it. I don't know when. Is it a year? Is it 10 years? Is it 20 years? I don't know. I'm not predicting dates. I don't know when. But he is going to bring suffering to our future to draw us out of self-reliance. We have more theologians and more books than anywhere in the world, but we have less of the power of God. And he is going to bring suffering into our future to draw us out of self-reliance and self-satisfaction to the place where we are desperate for him and the sign that we're desperate for him will be that we pray. Prayer won't just be another program. When you realize that you need God more than anything else, before you do anything, you'll first press into his presence and pray and get filled with his spirit. You say, oh, that's horrible news. No, that's good news. Everything is in his control. And he is bringing us, as the more he brings us into dependence on him, the more we're going to find him to be so amazingly good. You say, well, what do we do in the meantime? Well, we don't have to wait, you know, kind of batten down the hatches and wait for, you know, stuff to start happening. We can make a choice today. It just starts with a choice. 
We have to stop waiting for some kind of magic thing to happen. Like, when is, you know, the church just going to magically change? It's not going to magically change. It can start today with a choice. We as individuals and corporately here at Southland and in Canada as Christians, we need to corporately and individually start to make a choice. We need to choose to take. If we say that it really is about God and we we say it's all about God, we say that with our mouths, but if we actually think that in our hearts, what we're going to do is we're going to take prayer from being something in the middle of our priority list or at the bottom of our priority list and we're going to put it somewhere right near the top. Because if it really is all about God, everything we do has to start with going to Him, praying to Him, listening to Him, being filled with His Spirit and with His presence, falling in love with Him, and then out of that we leave empowered by His Spirit. If it really is all about Him, the, th- the fruit that we'll see is that we'll go to Him. And, it, that, and that's just what we call prayer. And prayer will go, we'll have to make a choice. A prayer is not in the middle, prayer is not in the bottom, prayer is going to the top. Now, of course, this is not, you know, a guilt trip, and I'm going to put the weekly challenge up there right away. My challenge to you is, I mean, we do these prayer meetings. Well, we don't do these prayer meetings just to have prayer meetings. We do these prayer meetings because we actually believe it is about him and that we need him in order to advance his kingdom. But this is not a guilt trip. I mean, totally, there's shift work, there's jobs, there's life happens. This is not about us taking, you know, uh, attendance now, and if you're at the prayer meeting or not, then, you know, people are going to be mad at you. It's not, nothing like that. The point is, at some point, we have to we have to make a choice, and this thing has to go to, this really is about God, and my, the way I show that is I'm going to him in prayer, corporate and individual prayer. And so I would challenge you tonight, again, tonight, it's not about just having a prayer summit. This is our chance as Southland to go to God and say, Jesus, we actually want to, be, we want to advance your kingdom. There's this kingdom, there's this one. This one here in Canada is not getting bigger right now. Jesus, we need you desperately. If we're going to advance your kingdom in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our marriages, with our kids, with our extended families, here in this community, Jesus, the first thing it's going to be is it has to start with you. So it's not a guilt trip. It's a challenge. You can mark your calendars every, uh, the second Friday of every month, we we do another prayer night, because for some people, Tuesday nights, we we run our prayer summits every month on Tuesday. Maybe Tuesday doesn't work for you, but we also have Fridays, second Friday of every month, we do in the prayer room awesome times, 9 to 12, so you can put your kids to bed first and then come and pray. Of course, you should leave someone to take care of the kids while you're gone, just to, <laughs> so I don't get in trouble legally here. Someone says, I just did what Chris told me to do. No, I didn't tell you to leave your kids at home, okay? But put them to bed and then come and pray, all right? Leave someone to look after them. But you can come pray from 9 till midnight, second Friday of every month. The next one is November 8th. It's awesome. Anyway, we're going to worship Jesus again now because it really is all about him. But first, let me just pray for you, and I want to pray for our church that we are going to become a praying church. Lord Jesus, we have We have said that it's all about you here in Canada and in North America. We've said it's all about you, but we have actually shown by our actions that it isn't all about you. We've been trying to do your work under our human effort. We've been trying to, instead of going for Holy Spirit power and listening to you and being in your presence, we've been going for human programs and glitz. And it's not that the programs are wrong, Jesus. We'll continue to do outreaches, but Jesus, it has to start with you. And I just pray that something would grip us as individuals and as a church body. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would grip us by your Holy Spirit, that we would be convicted of our need for you. And out of that desperation, just as our brothers and sisters in tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance around the world are pushing into you in prayer, Lord, out of that desperation for you, the fruit would be, Lord Jesus, that we would see a vast increase in prayer here at Southland and in Steinbeck and in churches across Canada. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.